Face masks have become the new normal as we continue to grapple with the ongoing pandemic. But when did we start wearing masks for our health and safety? This week on Throughline, the origins of the N95 mask and how it became the life-saving tool it is today. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This week, we're going to do something a little different. Occasionally, we have focused on things around us beyond the world of music, and now is the time for one of those shows. There has been lots of reporting out there about how the coronavirus and the resulting COVID infections have adversely impacted communities of color here in the U.S. And this week, I'm going to host a reporter's roundtable speaking to fellow journalists who are covering specific aspects of that story as it relates to the Latino community. We're going to hear from my NPR colleague, Marisa Peñalosa, who has been reporting on the plight of undocumented workers and their fight for personal protection equipment and economic aid when they can't do the work that has been categorized as essential. Reporter Barbara Estrada spoke to Latinos from the U.S. and people from Latin American countries who were in Europe when the pandemic started and who chose to stay there to ride this out. She'll tell us why. And Alfredo Corchado is a reporter for the Dallas Morning News, and he wrote an editorial recently for the New York Times op-ed section. But first up, I talked to another reporter from the Dallas Morning News. Senior writer Diane Solis normally covers immigration for the paper, but I talked to her about two stories that she has been covering, including the spread of the coronavirus in immigration detention centers in Texas. Diane Solis, welcome to Latino, and thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us about your work. Thank you so much for the invitation, Felix. You've been covering stories about the many ways the virus has impacted the immigration into this country and how this government has reacted. Let's talk about two specific areas. First, the ICE detention centers. And you've been covering this for quite some time. Can you give us a quick overview of what these detention centers were like before the arrival of the virus to this part of the world? Well, first, we have a civil detention system in the U.S. People are detained for civil immigration offenses. If they committed a criminal offense prior, they'd be in the conventional criminal justice system. And if you're detained in an immigration detention center, it's often harder for lawyers to get in to see people. For one thing, these detention centers are often far away from urban centers. That presents a huge problem. And again, they're there because they're trying to fight for their day in court. That would be immigration court and to fight their deportation. Okay, so now uh, what is the level of infection within that system? And is there any reliable data that you've been able to use in your reporting? There are now about 29,000 people in our civil detention system. Uh, Earlier in the year, it was almost 40,000. It's come down. And ICE reports daily now how many people are infected. It's 900 people, nearly 900 immigrants in a system that holds about 29,000. They say they've tested about twice that number that are infected. So that gives an infection rate of about 50%, which is huge. Does the number seem to be growing? The number of infected people is growing, yes. Every day it grows by 50, 80 persons. Is there any data about how many deaths there have been? Yes, ICE is required to report deaths in custody. And there has been a tragic death in California of a man who 
was COVID infected and got sicker and sicker. When people are testing positive within this system, are they afforded uh, medical care? And if so, uh, what kind of access to medical care are they getting? ICE is very careful about the information that they give out in those cases. And they say that they do have medical care, that people who have tested COVID positive are put in quarantine. I have talked to people inside and their families, and they're really worried about what happens inside detention centers because they say that there isn't enough scrutiny of people who might be asymptomatic and that people were moving freely in these detention centers. Another huge problem that I discovered at Prairie Land Detention Center was transfers that happened. And that we always knew that that happened, that people were zipped across from detention center to detention center or from jails that had ICE contracts. Always knew that happened. But what happened in, in Prairie Land is that people, um, uh, almost two dozen people were transferred from a jail in Pennsylvania, and many of them then tested positive. And I found this out because an attorney reached out to me in Pennsylvania about his clients. And then I was able to, to speak to the families and to one of the persons inside. And it was a very difficult conversation for both of us because he was suicidal. And he has since tested negative, and then he was tested again, and he tested positive. So that raises a lot of questions. Was that a false negative? Did he get reinfected? Don't know. And where is that detainee now? Prairie Land Detention Center in Alvarado, Texas, which is about a 45-minute drive from downtown Dallas. It holds about 700 immigrants, and it opened about four years ago. It's privately owned by the LaSalle Corrections Company out of Louisiana. Do you have any idea of whether or not there are any provisions being made for social distancing or quarantine once people get infected? That's been a continuing problem that the immigrants have talked about is that there isn't enough social distancing uh, that, in fact, impossible. I've seen photos where the beds are very close together and you and I could reach them just by stretching out our arm. Again, you have these people who can be asymptomatic and they're not put into what is a quarantine. In the case of the immigrant I mentioned who is now so distraught, he feels that because he's in quarantine with other people who are COVID positive, maybe he got reinfected. And the whole issue of reinfection is, is a huge one for all public health folks and the public around the globe. Are people still being deported during this crisis? And, and if so, are they being checked whether or not they are infected before they're being deported? People are still being deported, yes. And uh, a large examination of that has happened uh, with deportees to Guatemala. And ISIS says that they check their temperatures before, but the Guatemalans tell a different story. That's the Guatemalan government tells a different story. And they say that people who have been uh, deported have later tested positive for COVID. How do they know that? They put people into quarantine in Guatemala. When they land, then people have tested positive. The first case happened March 26th with a flight from Phoenix. 
and the numbers of COVID positive people has grown since then, according again to the Guatemalan government. So you have reporters who are sitting in the U.S. talking to the Guatemalan government on WhatsApp, and we're talking to ICE and, and to attorneys and to families here in the U.S. and stitching together stories of how the system works. Let's talk a little bit about your reporting techniques in this age of quarantine and social distancing. How much are you able to do from home and what precautions do you take when you have to go out into the field to do your reporting? I'm very careful about what stories I'm going to go out on. And I have gloves, two kinds of gloves. I have three kinds of face masks that I use and I talk through. And it's so much better to talk to people in person if it's the first interview, particularly. I've been taken aback by how many undocumented immigrants want to talk. They want their voice heard. They don't want to be filtered through a spokesperson. And it's a bit analogous to what you've seen with the documented people, those folks with DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, where they started a whole movement about wanting to have their voice heard. And they had a slogan, undocumented and unafraid. I see that somewhat happening here in North Texas. And I think there's just a level of desperation that has brought people to that point. The other story you've been following is the situation with mixed families. Tell us what a mixed family is and what kind of problems they have been encountering during all of this crisis. Mixed status families are generally a family where people have U.S. citizenship or legal permanent residency or they're undocumented. And in those cases, you can have social security cards, you can have something called a individual taxpayer ID number or an I-10, or you can have people who don't file taxes and have none of those SSNs or I-10s. And we have a lot of people in that situation. There are estimates that there are about 2 million people who have social security numbers but are married to somebody who has an I-10 number. There are 4 million children who are U.S. citizens and have at least one parent who is an unauthorized immigrant. So what happened under the big stimulus package known as the CARES Act, it was a $2 trillion package, was that it only covered those people who had social security numbers. If they filed with somebody who didn't have a social security number, they were not included in uh, the stimulus checks. And for a family of four, that can be a lot of money. That can be about $5,000 with, you know, two parents getting $1,200 each and children getting uh, $500 apiece. And so what happened is people started organizing. Uh, usually U.S. citizen spouses started organizing around this and saying, you know, hey, who I married, who I fell in love with shouldn't matter. Moreover, you know, I, went, I was good with the law. We paid our taxes. My spouse had an ITIN number. And before you knew it, there were four lawsuits. Now, people have asked me, well, aren't these spouses undocumented? And why should we give a stimulus check to the undocumented? We don't really know that they're undocumented because the process of getting a legal permanent residency card is, is complicated and takes time. There's multiple steps. 
So you could be trying to quote, get right by the law and not have your social security card yet. But some people are in the process. They're not yet to the final finish line, but they do have that social security card and they do have their work permit. And I interviewed a couple like that for a big feature that we did on mixed status families and the CARES Act. Okay, to wrap it up, again, remind us where we can find your work. You can find my work at dallasnews.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm, uh, it's my social media uh, drug of choice. Twitter. <laughs> Dye Solis. That's correct. And what's next? What stories are you working on next that we can look forward to and look for? I'm looking at uh, an infection of uh, COVID at a poultry plant and how that created possibly community spread, how it impacted the parents of, of one worker and what they're going through now. And we know that a lot of infection has happened in the meat industry. At the same time, President Trump is trying hard to keep open that industry. I'm also very, very troubled by toxic stress among children children of immigrants who are U.S. citizens or children who are themselves immigrants. This is quite a load on them. They already felt like piñatas because of the way they're denigrated uh, in recent years or the way their parents are denigrated and now they have to deal with the COVID monster. And there are academics, uh, public health researchers that are now looking exactly at this problem of, of, of stress, of toxic stress, or what we also know as PTSD. Well, we hope to do this again on Alt Latino, and we hope that you'll uh, come back and talk to us. Oh, I'd love to, Felix. Thank you so much for the invitation. You're listening to Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. Imagine writing this pandemic out in a foreign country. Next up, reporter Barbara Estrada talks to us about some people who did just that, for a blog run by the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. The blog is called Palabra, and here is our conversation. Barbara Estrada, welcome to Alt Latino. Thank you for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me, Felix. You talked to a number of different people in your story. Tell us about three of them. Give us an example of, of the people that you talked to. Tell us about the first person you talked to. So the first person that I spoke to, her name is Kayla Medina, and she's a dual citizen of the U.S. and Germany, and she's currently living in Berlin. She is one of at least 1.6 million Americans who live and work in Europe, according to the Association of American Residents Overseas. And she's a communication strategist working for an online sports company. And, you know, for her, it was just like common sense to just stay put. She's been working from home since the coronavirus outbreak began in Italy and Spain. Now, one of the things that she talked about specifically was the issue of health insurance. Talk to us a little bit about what she said in terms of being insured there and dealing with the virus. So, you know, she obviously told me that she doesn't want to put her loved ones in danger. And so her parents are living in Miami, which is where she's from, born and raised for a part of her life. And um, just flying back home wasn't really an option for her. She just said it was like, you know, putting them at a higher risk. And so she also has public health insurance in Germany, and so that was one of the motivating reasons why she just decided to stay put. 
that's the thing. Like I'm insured here in Europe and if anything were to happen overseas or, you know, if I was somewhere else, I would still be covered. If I was living and working in the U.S., it would be a different situation. But luckily, I do fall into a category where I am insured and covered if I'm still overseas. Yeah, it would be tougher. It would be a lot tougher if I was over there. Okay, another person you talked to is from uh, Panama. Tell us about him. The person that I spoke to from Panama is a university student at the University of London. He's studying for his master's degree in business, and um, his name is Jose Antonio. And Jose Antonio really tells me, you know, it's interesting about his story because as all the other people that I spoke to in my report, they were already in Europe when this pandemic of the coronavirus was really reaching unprecedented levels. But for him, he was in his home country of Panama and decided to go back to London. He told me that before the situation escalated where borders um, would close as they currently are with the travel restrictions, um, he just wanted to be there to be able to finish his uh, master's degree. You say he was in Panama with his family, but then he returned, and you write that he was concerned about his parents. Jose Antonio's parents are older, and, you know, it was just common sense to just leave and go to the place where he's getting his studies, even if it means staying in isolation. In our conversation, he just put it like this. He's like, you know, if there's more people in a house, there's a higher chance of risk of getting this sort of virus, you know, the coronavirus. And it just, you know, he just left. That was uh, something that made sense to him. My father is 65 and 59 years old. My dad and mom. And with all that, the chance is very little. There's always a risk. The more people there are in a house, the chance is that someone is contagious and that, therefore, that person is contagious in the rest of the house. I think it's better for my parents that I be here alone than with them. And finally, the third person had an interesting situation. He's originally from Mexico, but has been living in Spain for a long time. Tell us about him. The third person that I spoke to, his name is Octavio, and Octavio has been living in Madrid, Spain, for over 20 years. He has his entire life there. He has a family of small children, his wife, job, or he has his own company and is also the president of this politically independent association of entrepreneurs and business leaders. And also he is a university professor in Madrid. And because of his dual citizen status, he has access to public health in Spain, correct? Yes, that's correct. Just to speak a little bit about the national healthcare system in Spain, Spain's General Healthcare Act of 1986 guarantees universal coverage and free healthcare access to all Spanish nationals, regardless of economic situation or participation in the social security network. Um, and so, you know, when I spoke to him, he, you know, it was a clear advantage to being in Europe and specifically in Spain. He told me that it's, in his own words, one of the best in the world. El sistema de salud público español es uno de los mejores del mundo, reconocido por varios organismos internacionales. And you have experience with the public health system in Europe yourself. Tell us a little bit about that. So in the summer of 2017, I was visiting Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and I actually got sick during my time there studying at a in a summer university program. And I contacted my program coordinators, and I told them I wanted to see a doctor. How do I set that up? And the process was, in my opinion, seamless. I was able to see a doctor within that same week. I know it was pretty quick, the process of calling and setting up an appointment. 
I went to my doctor. I sat in the lobby and I got to see him immediately. I didn't really have to wait too much. And also, I didn't really have to wait too much time for my lab results. Um, in fact, I told him, look, this is a problem that I think I'm having. And within that same appointment with my doctor, I got my results. Um, I paid for the appointment, got my prescription, went to the pharmacy, and I ended up getting everything within that same day of seeing my doctor. And the even better portion of this is that, um, yes, I did have to pay for all these things, but I got every cent back in a check. And it was about $50 that I spent. And that was it. It was in that moment, I thought, wow, why is it that we can't have this sort of process in the United States? It's certainly part of the uh, national conversation at this point in the midst of this pandemic. We can find your story online on the National Association of Hispanic Journalists blog site, Palabra. Tell us a little bit about your involvement with it and uh, what are you working on next? I'm a member of NHJ and have been a member since I was a college student, and I saw the opportunity to be able to freelance write as I am a freelance journalist, and this story was something that the editors found to be interesting. And the next thing that I'll be working on with Palabra is this other story that I won't give too much details about, but it does have an international news thread tied to the story that is published on their site. And it's also in correlation to what's going on with the coronavirus pandemic. And you also have a podcast. Tell us about that. Yes. So I'm so excited that you asked. My podcast is called Work in Progress. It is a global podcast about ordinary, extraordinary people in their 20s. All ages are welcome to listen. No topics are off the table. And the reason why I'm really focusing on people in their 20s is because I'm really trying to make a point here. Millennials, which is a generation that I'm part of, get this reputation that we're lazy, that we don't care, um, that we're just entitled. And that's really not the case. Um, at times, we can definitely suffer from moments of loneliness. And so that's that's the reason why this podcast exists, because although we may seem so different, we're all so very similar. Well, we want to encourage folks listening to check out your podcast. I'm assuming you can find it on uh, the usual streaming services. Correct, yes. Check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Rate, like, subscribe. That really does help the visibility of the podcast. <laughs> I would appreciate it. <laughs> way to promo. Way to, way to promote yourself. That's awesome. <laughs> Barbara Estrada, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about your story and about the work you're doing in general. I hope it's not the last time and we will follow up because we will be doing more of these type of uh, shows here on Alt Latino to get more information out. Uh, that will help people and enlighten what we're going through. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Felix. Again, you can find her reporting and so much more at palabranhj.org. That's P-A-L-A-B-R-A-N-A-H-J.org. Palabranhj.org. Okay, next up, you know, when you listen to NPR stories from distant places around the globe or even maybe your next town, chances are there is a field producer who has been working on the story from inception until it airs that is just as important as the correspondent. Marisa Peñalosa is one of those producers and is one of the best in the business. But like everyone else during this pandemic crisis, she has been in lockdown. So she has lent her considerable journalism skills to writing stories for NPR.org about how the virus is impacting the Latino community. Up next, she talks to us about some of her recent work. 
Marisa Peñalosa, thank you so much for joining us here on Alt Latino this week. Can you give us a couple examples of some recent stories that you've worked on? So I've been focusing on the sort of economic, food and housing uh, vulnerability of the communities. You know, these are mostly undocumented workers losing their jobs. And even before the public health pandemic, this population was in a very vulnerable position. You know, millions of mostly people of color, mostly immigrants and often undocumented workers um, had very little job security. And so one of the stories that I did recently was on May 1st, thousands of undocumented immigrants took to the streets on car caravans to demand better uh, working conditions, safer working conditions, and dignity for their work. What type of work do these folks do that places them in a such a precarious situation? These are typically people who work in the service industry, you know, supermarkets, food processing plants, meatpacking industry, nannies, healthcare workers, home aid workers. Home aid workers are the people who take care of the elderly at home. If they don't have transportation, they have to take the bus, they have to take the subway, right? They can't isolate, they can't stay at home. And then once they're on the job, they come in contact with all kinds of people. Since you're reporting in early May, have you seen any updates on their demands on any of these industries that have taken their demands into consideration and provided them with any kind of protection? You know, that's a difficult question. I was talking to an organizer in Chicago the other day, exactly looking at this question of enforcement. You know, who polices the bosses? (laughs) in the meatpacking plants, in the manufacturing jobs. And he said that, at least in Chicago, activists have taken this very seriously, and also workers. They're terrified to go to work, and they have to choose between getting a paycheck or getting infected, right? And so uh, the Chicago activists did tell me that they managed to shut down a bakery. It was an industrial bakery with about 100 workers. And the bakery shut down for two weeks to do deep cleaning. It paid its employees while they were home for two weeks. And then everybody came back and the workforce felt safer. But it's hard to tell how much enforcement goes on. In the course of your reporting, you know, often a single personal profile can humanize a very complex situation like the kind we're talking about. Have you talked to people, individuals who have had their lives impacted by these policies and have you been able to tell their stories on the NPR website? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A single mom in New Jersey, two daughters, She thought that she had all of the symptoms of COVID-19, but felt afraid to go to the clinic and get tested because she doesn't have documents. She's a cleaning lady, and so she had to stay home and is not getting a paycheck. It's not getting help from the government and doesn't know if she has COVID-19. 
And there are many people like that who are afraid to go to the clinics. I was talking to a doctor yesterday for a completely different story, but it has to do with access to testing in underserved communities. This doctor works at a community health center where immigration status is not asked. And he was telling me that people are, are afraid to come in, and they're afraid because uh, either because of their immigration status or someone in their family who is out of a status, or they're afraid because they feel like they're going to get infected. So many ways, so many untold ways that this uh, virus is impacting the community. And now I want to do a little behind-the-scenes question for you, because I know that you had something interesting happen to you. Just as this was uh, becoming a bigger story or a bigger health threat, really, here in, in the United States, you were actually on assignment uh, with an NPR correspondent in the Mideast, correct? Yes. Uh, we went to Syria. We embedded with uh, U.S. forces. And we actually flew back on March 13th, which uh, was the day President Trump canceled all flights from Europe. That's basically when the lockdown began. You know, after being embedded with U.S. forces in Syria, completely exposed to, you know, in a war zone. <laughs> I was just thrilled to be home because I thought that Trump was going to close all flights, all airports. And so I get home, and at home, there was this panic about the virus. I had read some articles while I was overseas, but I don't think I was prepared for the level of panic that was taken over the country. And I was like... You know, what's, what's all this about? Why are we doing this? You know? It must have felt weird to, to walk into. It felt like maybe even a different country in a way. Very harsh reentry, for sure. Especially because I felt like people in Syria are dealing with bullets, with drones attacking their towns, with, with war, right? Right. And here, it took a little bit to sink into my brain what was going on. Well, we do want to remind uh, Latino listeners that they can uh, see those reports on the NPR website. Their reports done with uh, correspondent Tom Bowman. And we want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us this week about your reports and hope we can uh, invite you back so we, uh, we can do some follow-up. That would be great. Thank you for having me. And finally, Dallas Morning News reporter Alfredo Corchado had an opportunity recently to put down his reporter's notepad and connect the dots of his reporting on immigration and the virus. Then he wrote an op-ed opinion piece that ran in the New York Times. He has appeared on Alt Latino before in 2014 when we talked about his book Midnight in Mexico, a reporter's journey through a country's descent into darkness. Here is our conversation about his op-ed piece. Alfredo Corchado, thank you so much for joining us here on Alt Latino this week. Pleasure. Felix, it's been a while. Okay. You start your editorial with a childhood memory. So talk to us about those early days. It was a very specific history growing up in the San Joaquin Valley. That's something you and I have in common of the San Joaquin Valley. Talk to us a little bit about that and what inspired that memory as you started your editorial. We had just left Mexico. We were newly... I guess green card holders 
and we joined our father who was working in the San Joaquin Valley in the fields. As you know, I mean, uh, there aren't many babysitters. So as kids, we would uh, join our parents out in the fields, picking tomatoes, other crops. And what spurred that memory was being at an organic supermarket uh, in El Paso, here in El Paso where I now live, and just squeezing the, the vegetables, the tomatoes, you know, it just brought memories of the childhood, of having grown up in the San Joaquin Valley, having worked around the Oro Loma area, Firebaum, Mendota, the memories were just fresh. You make the transition from field work to immigration status in the piece, and is it much more common now to have an undocumented labor force than it was when you were a child? I think it's always been that way. I mean, as, as, a, as a kid, being out in the fields, uh, my, my aunt was a labor contractor, but I still very, remember very vividly, you know, there was a particular phrase that she would say, which basically meant hide, duck. And you realize that, you know, half the crew or more than half the crew uh, suddenly was running, you know, looking for the nearest canal, just dropping along with the crops to hide from the U.S. Border Patrol. So I, I think it's always been that way. It, it was interesting writing the piece, talking to growers in California. They, they estimate that uh, the numbers are more like 70, 75 percent. Uh, I think the U.S. Department of Agriculture claims that the figures are more like 50 percent. So it's between that range. But as a kid, I mean, that's something that I've, I've always known, that half the crew or more than half the crew didn't have paper. And that speaks to your main point of the, the piece. Of course, we want people to go to the website and read it for themselves, but I think we can discuss your main point. And you suggested that the U.S. government should offer all essential workers a path to legalization, not amnesty, but a path to legalization of some kind. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, in, in talking to growers, they said, look, the last time we were able to bring new field hands, if you will, replenish America, was during the 1986 ERCA, when Ronald Reagan was president. The average age today out in the field, farm workers, I mean, their age is like 40 years of age. I mean, they're getting older and they see no way out. And if food security is so critical, it's so essential, you have to address the issue of how do you bring in new people? There aren't that many Mexicans anymore leaving Mexico for, for jobs. So the idea is you, you also have to expand to other countries, particularly Central America, South America. But you have to bring in a whole new group of people who will make sure that America is fed, who will make sure that Americans get their wine, you know, in the summer times and, and year round. It, it's something, you know, I, I asked this particular rancher, uh, grower in, in California, I said, with unemployment, you know, going so high, don't you think more Americans will, will arrive looking for a job? And he says, you know, they, they don't, they don't, you know, I mean, you need a specific skill, but also it's so backbreaking that I just can't ima uh, imagine Americans doing it. And when they do, they, they, uh, many of them don't show up the second day and many of them leave before lunchtime. You know, there's something you and I talked about when you were on the show in 2014. My father was from the same farm worker background as a child, and uh, he grew up during the Great Depression, and he basically remembers the same thing, where Americans during that time of great job loss that we're going to experience here pretty soon, uh, Americans just did not want to go out and do that kind of work. So as a result, there was still a need for people to come in from outside of the country to do the, to do the labor. 
Right. I mean, uh, the, the other point of the editorial was America wants it both ways. You know, they, they want to be fed, uh, but they also want to treat the immigrant, treat the farm worker like a piñata. You know, you, you just keep, keep hitting them and hitting them. But uh, America is a fickle country. You and I know that. You've been covering immigration for quite a long time. What has the pandemic done to the politics of immigration right now? I think it really exposed hypocrisy in the country. I mean, you want walls, you want to keep people out, but who is putting groceries on your dinner table? Who's making sure that you have food? So I think this, uh, you know, it exposes the hypocrisy of immigration, uh, the hypocrisy along the U.S.-Mexico border. I hope it makes people really think twice about what they want to do and about, you know, whether you keep looking at immigrants as a burden, as outcasts of society, they're critical to the infrastructure of this country, especially during a pandemic. This was an op-ed piece. Now, what are you working on on your, on your daily beat? What are you working on for the paper these days? We are very focused on, obviously, the, the pandemic, the COVID-19 along the U.S.-Mexico border, been looking at how the, the construction of the wall continues, and the supply chain, you know, the North America supply chain, how critical in this case, you have what is with the with the factories. I mean, GM, Ford, they can't really operate unless the automotive industry is working and humming along Ciudad Juarez. But this is, you know, Juarez has not really reached its plateau or its peak. I mean, there, there's still many outbreaks. So it, it, as me as a reporter, I think it'll be interesting to see the next few days, next few weeks, how Juarez and, and other towns throughout Mexico, cities throughout Mexico, adapt to to the U.S. opening, reopening its economy. Do you see any sign at all that the governments of Mexico and the United States are working together at all or coordinating in terms of immigration, in terms of workflow, in terms of the flow of goods and services during this uh, pandemic situation. Do you see any of that happening at all? Or do they seem to be concerned about what's happening in their individual countries and, and leaving everything else to maybe working on it later on down the line? That's a fascinating question. I mean, I've been watching this uh, relationship between the two as they evolve. I mean, you, you kind of have a romance building between uh, President Trump and President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, but yet at the state level, there's a lot of pushback. Uh, for example, again, in, in Chihuahua, they're saying, hey, we are not ready for this. Uh, I think it, it, it brings health, the importance of health on both sides of the border. And really in North America, it, it, it really magnifies the importance of keeping pe people healthy on both sides. If North America is to continue growing, Canada, United States, Mexico, that has to be a factor. I mean, that has to be something that, that people need to take seriously. Juarez will likely open next week because there's a lot of pressure from the auto industry in the United States, from the Pentagon, from the State Department, even the U.S. Uh, ambassador in Mexico City who, who keeps you know, tweeting the, the importance of getting back to work. It's fascinating to see on one side the federal government in Mexico, and then you have the state government saying, hold a minute, let's, let's slow down. It almost seems like uh, with the economy all over the world, but in particular with these uh, three countries, kind of just starting from scratch with a clean slate, it, 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 there, there seems to be an opportunity to reconstruct things in a way that would be 
beneficial and not so much full of politics. I think that's really what, especially residents from the border, I think that's kind of what they're saying. You know, they're, they're like, hey, see, see, this is how important we are. And not only to our communities here, but really to the whole continent. This is the importance. I mean, it, again, it, it's peeling away a lot of the politics, the red meat that you have a President Trump, you know, throwing out to his base. And I think that's a hope that beyond this pandemic, that people can rethink how to proceed in the future. It obviously is tough to an election year. Alfredo Corchalo from Dallas Morning News, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us on Not Latino, and I hope we can come back to you with uh, more developments as you cover this story. Always my pleasure, Felix. Okay, bro. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you again to the reporters and writers who took time from their busy, deadline-driven lives to talk to us about the reporting. Alfredo Corchalo and Diane Solis of the Dallas Morning News Marisa Peñolosa from NPR, and Barbara Estrada from the NAHJ blog, Palabra. You can find links to all of their work on our website, npr.org slash altlatino. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras. Thanks for listening. Y ten cuidado. Be safe out there, folks. <laughs>